one tell me next week, oh, I liked it better when you were sick. <laughs> but uh, sometimes that happens. I don't know how that how it works. But uh, yes, we did have a memorial service yesterday, a funeral service for John Lowe Jr. And uh, there's also others in our family who are suffering hurt at this time too. I know the Thompson family, uh, Craig's sister-in-law, or excuse me, brother-in-law, uh, passed away, and the family is down in the Pittsburgh area to, to be with them during this time. Just be in prayer for, for that family as well. Um, it's a personal blessing to me yesterday to, uh, to do the service yesterday and enjoyed working, having Rod along with me. It was nice to see him, and I uh, particularly enjoyed that aspect of the service. And um, that was a personal blessing yesterday. Um, Genesis 17 is where we are this morning. Genesis 17. Looking at Abraham at 99. He's 99 years old. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the love of God. We thank you for the grace of God. All of these things are precious gifts to us. May we in our life not despise them, but that we would cling to them and that we would appreciate them and desire them far above all else. That we would desire you and find ourselves satisfied in all that you are. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, last Sunday, Abraham was 86 years old. This Sunday, he's 99 years old. That was pretty quick. That's 13 years. And I know, actually, you might be looking for some chapters in there, but we didn't skip any chapters. Like, he just went from, like, 86 to 99. And uh, now... Sarah is also 13 years older. She is uh, 89. And there's a lot that happens in 13 years. And I think through my own personal life, a lot has happened in 13 years of my own life. I have a young boy. I have a boy who is like a man now. You know, I was cutting his hair the other day. And I was looking at the back of him and thinking, wow, this guy's like, he's no longer this little thing anymore. He's actually filling out. I better be careful. There's a lot of ha- things happen. I, I think back in my own family, we've lived in five different homes over 13 years. We have uh, birthed four biological children. We've adopted a fifth, finished a theological degree. I've worked in automotive. I was an assistant pastor, now a senior pastor. We lost our father-in-law. And that's just a little, a few things. I mean, There's a lot that happens in 13 years, right? There's a lot of life experience. Does it seem odd that we would skip over such extensive period of time in the life of Abraham? Well, actually, in the life of Abraham, as it's recorded in the Scriptures, we've really actually gone through 25 years of his life. And we've only really looked at five 
little points along the way in 25 years. And in those five little points, uh, there's been significant things happen. And when you think about it, only seeing five little snippets, five little venues, little snapshots of someone who is as important as Abraham is in the Bible, does that strike you as a bit little odd? That's it? Well, what's really fascinating is that in each of these five little venues that we have seen, uh, except for one, God's Word was central and the primary moving point in the storyline. God was moving. And actually, that other point that was not including the Word of God, it was very clear that the Word of God was being ignored. Remember when they went down to Egypt, contrary to the Word of God. What do we make sense of? How do we make sense of all this? We make sense of this because you see that the primary significance here is that what God says is important, even more important than our own lives. Now, that may be a little bit of a rebuke to us where we think that this world revolves around us, but the truth is what God does is infinitely more important than what we do, and often we have that backward. What did Jesus say to Satan in the wilderness? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. It is the word of God that is central. And so this morning, we, in, verse, in chapter 17, we get lots of the word of God, God speaking, and this is the longest speaking section that we've encountered yet. And I want to just warn you a little bit this morning, this is not a milk section of the Word of God. This is a meat section. This is meaty. I don't know how you like your meat. The waitress always asks me, how do you like your meat? I was just like, it's like, like a medium well. But I hope that this morning we can get this well done, you know, that we, we were able to, to get it and be able to chew it and process it. Really important, uh, important for us this morning. And so, as we look at this text, we see Abraham being spoken to by the Lord again, and after 25 years of waiting for the birth of a son, Abraham in this moment is told that your wait is over. You've only got one more year to go. Oh, and just one other thing, you've got to get circumcised. Wow, that's a lot going on right there. A lot to process, a lot of word of God to take in there. That's a hard obstacle to get over. Now, I want us to read through this text, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview of the, the chapter as we go along. But I want us to see that in verse 1, as I read, God reveals himself as El Shaddai to Abraham for the very first time. And it's very important in this text. So, verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And in verses 2 through 3, God then reveals the kind of fruit that he requires of Abraham in this relationship of faith. 
Reading on, it says, that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And so in verse 3, you see Abraham responding here with a reverence of worship. Let's keep reading on through verse 5 through 8. And we see here a, a new aspect of this covenant relationship. Verses 5, it says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but, you shall, uh, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into a nation, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so, there's an expansion of this covenant relationship with God, and so there's a new symbol of this, and it's expounded in verses 9 through 14. Let's keep going. It says, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant with you that you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from the, any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was brought, excuse me, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, and he shall, he, for he has broken my covenant. And then verses 15 to 16, God reveals the timing here of this birth that's going to take place. Let's keep reading. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and moreover... I will give her, I will, excuse me, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so, this is the terms of this relationship, this covenant. And then verses 22 to the end, Abraham is obedient. Let's read what, what he does in verse 22. When he had finished 
talking with him, God went up from Abraham, and then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now, that is a lot of information to digest here this morning. There's a lot going on there, but for this morning, I'm not going to go through every detail in this chapter. I think it would be helpful for us just to be selective, and I'm planning to be selective in how I present what is happening here in this text. There is a unique ritual that takes place, and I want us to just look at the highlights of what God is saying here, and also take a look at the participants, people who are involved in this this ceremony. And I believe it's important for us to understand that God is expanding His previous covenant relationship, His covenant that He had made with Abraham in several ways. But before we go there, I have to ask ourselves, do we remember what a covenant is? Do we remember what it is? And some of us may say, well, yeah, you know, it's that creepy ceremony. You know, where you cut up all the animals and you lay them out in halves and you walk between them? That is a covenant ceremony. And remember, the significance of that ceremony is, is significant because in a, typical, in a typical kind of relationship uh, like this, a covenant relationship is the kind of relationship where there's consequences for leaving an agreement. And so what would typically happen is that two parties would, they'd cut the animals in half and they'd lay them on, on, in halves and then both parties would walk through. It was like a word play. This is what's going to happen to me if I violate the covenant agreement with you. I'm going to be torn asunder and I will be ripped apart. And if you remember Genesis chapter 15, something surprising happens. You would expect that Abraham would have walked through but instead, God goes through making the statement that I will be torn asunder if either you or I violate this covenant agreement. Very unique, very unique ceremony. In other words, it was an unconditional promise of God towards Abraham. Unconditional. What that means is this is pure grace to Abraham pure grace. And we noted the importance of this ceremony as a picture pointing forward to Christ being torn apart on the cross in our place. What is happening here is something that is also a part of, but it is an expansion of this previous ceremony that God did. And so, in chapter 17, we have here an expansion that exists underneath of this unconditional grace. There's a conditional aspect that's going on here, and you see that conditional aspect in verses 1 and 2. It says, 
just reading it again, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless so that I might make my covenant between you, me and you and multiply you greatly. And as you read that, you see that there's a condition there. Why is that the case? I mean, there was grace there in the past. Why is there now a condition here, a part of what's going on? Why, you know, it, it sounds like an, it's like an oxymoron. How can there be conditions for something that is unconditional? And what's happening here, if you remember Genesis 15, Abraham was a passive partner and now God is calling him to respond by faith and to become an active participant in a relationship with him. So there is faith that's going on on this side. Where there was pure grace in Genesis 15, we are seeing an, a, a, an invitation to believe and respond by faith. That's what's happening in chapter 17. There is an expansion going on here. And there's a necessity for obedience to manifest the faith that is inside of the heart. This is what is happening. And I want to just use an example here to help us understand this concept. This is meat. This is a little bit more challenging. It's not milk. Think of the unconditional promise of God as being like an umbrella. And underneath there is maybe two people standing. Let's just turn this analogy a little bit towards something a little more personal. Let's say, for example, I was walking with Anna, my daughter, in the rain, and I came across this picture, and I couldn't help but put it up. It reminded me of my daughter. Very sweet. But as, let's just imagine I'm walking with my daughter underneath of an umbrella, now, as we're walking in the rain, if she were to walk close to my legs, and I asked her, you, you come close to my legs, that way you don't get wet. And if I ask her to stay by me, she's got to believe, right? She's got to believe that my, my canopy is going to cover her. She has to, by faith, draw in close underneath, beside me. And it's in the same way that the umbrella of God's grace, His unconditional promise to us, has to be recognized and believed by faith. We have to then obey and come in underneath of that umbrella canopy. There is a conditional aspect here. But there's nothing that she can do but trust that by being close to me that she will be covered and cared for, if you will, by grace. Her faith and movement doesn't save her. It's the canopy that saves her. It is by faith alone in grace. And that condition there doesn't save her, but it is the active response that brings her underneath of the care of God's umbrella, if you will. I'm blending images here, and I hope I'm not confusing you in what I'm saying. 
It's her obedience to my word, for example, if I tell her, you come in underneath of my umbrella, her obedience is evidence of saving faith, that she believes that the canopy will cover her. And so, in this way, if she does not believe me, and she goes outside of that grace, she's going to get wet. And see, faith leads her to cling to my legs, or unbelief causes her to wander away and then get wet. So, you can see that within the unconditional aspect of grace, there is faith. There is to be belief. You see, it's important for us to understand this concept as believers. There are parties that are involved in this covenant uh, relationship that are important for us to see as well here this morning. El Shaddai in verse 1. The first expression of of God in that name, that's a name that we are familiar with if you've been around Christian circles for a period of time, El Shaddai. In fact, there's a song written about that name. But the meaning of this name is very significant for Abraham. In our English translation, it's that word almighty, God almighty. And it has a two, it plays on itself. There's two words that, that come to mind here. And in different contexts in the Old Testament, it's used in different ways. But just to simplify it for, this, for us this morning, the first idea is that he is almighty and omnipotent. He is so powerful that he can overturn the regular laws of nature. You know, when Jesus said, look, in his ministry, he said, look, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That defies the the normal patterns that we live with. And it's the same way here with, with, with God. He is able to overturn the normal effects of nature. By rights, Abraham could, should not have been able to give, you know, seed and There was no possible way for Sarah to be able to conceive. God is radically independent. He can do what he pleases. He's not beholden to the governing laws that he himself has created. He can do whatever he wants. That's not contrary to his own nature and character. And so there is a, there is a, an amazing revelation here. In fact, what he's communicating is, I can be torn asunder and it doesn't destroy who I am. I can do that. Well, the second meaning of this name also comes from its use in different contexts. Be sensitive to how I talk about this, but it, it used half the time as being almighty and the other half of the time this word is used is often used in a context of a nursing mother. And the idea here is that it's able to nourish, he's, he's able to supply, he's able to give what we need and he satisfies. Just like a nursing infant. So if you take these all together, what this is communicating is that God 
is able to pour forth sustenances and blessings upon people who don't deserve them, that people that, that it looks like there's no possible hope here. God's the all-sufficient, bountiful one. And you think back on the life of Abraham and Sarah. He had left a very settled place, and he had, he'd gone out by faith. He had all this comfortable circumstances where family was close and friends were nearby. In many years, his, his life stood the test of waiting for God to, to come in and do what he said he was going to do. And when all of these promises seemed to be completely unfulfillable from a human standpoint, God took matters into his own hands and made seed from nothing. He radically supplied everything that was necessary for him, for Abraham and for Sarah. And it's a demonstration that he is dispensing his bounty and he is giving his grace. Why wouldn't we want to come in underneath of that? Why wouldn't we want to come in and saddle in by the legs of God underneath the umbrella of His grace? So, God tells them that if you believe, I am going to bless you beyond your imagination. God is, and there's a truth here that God imparts to all who believe in Him a fullness and blessings that they can't find anywhere else. And it's so radical, this kind of faith, that it actually changes who we are. And, and the other people in this, this storyline at this point, you know, Abram, his name is changed to Abraham. Sarai is changed to Sarah. It totally changes who they are at a foundational level. So, Abram's name means exalted father, a person who is, you know, an exalted, respected, noble person. That's what Abram literally means. And God steps in, He changes it and says, look, your name, name, your name now means father of a multitude. Father of a multitude. And see, Abraham believed God, and then this demonstration of faith through obedience is here, and, and yet, and then God blesses. And it's important for us to understand that this covenant, this, this relationship, this agreement was, was a result of God's initiative. But there's a confirmation here in the response of faith. There is a demand that's required here of circumcision. And that ritual is described in verses 11 through 13. And I don't want to dwell too long on the details, but just to explain that it's a setting apart of this procreation and initiation of a seed and, and a purification that is intended here. And it's a sign of solidarity within the, the Jewish family that would come. But there is a, a demand of obedience as a result of faith and believing that God is all-powerful in His grace. You also have Sarah here as well. Her name is changed. What's interesting here is that 
Her name in both dialects means princess, but yet there is like a, a change that's made here. You know, her old name is kind of like in her past, and now this new name that's connected to Abraham is in her future. She's looking forward to noble descendants now because of, of God's intervention in her life. Now, it's important for us to just pause and stop and think for a moment that God is not just blessing and changing Abraham. He's also changing Sarah. See, God's blessings are not limited to a specific gender. God's blessing are for male or female. And all who embrace God with a whole heart through faith will be blessed. See, it's not enough for, I think this is an important point as well for us to understand because this, this rite of circumcision, it's, it's not enough just for the male to be circumcised, but you know what? Both mother and father have got to consent to the practice of it. I think that's a, an important point for us to understand, that the passing of faith has to be a parental shared commitment. For example, in the book of Exodus, Moses' wife, Zipporah, apparently had resented the idea of circumcising their children and said, no way am I going to get involved with this. And it became so serious an issue that God intervened and threatened to kill Moses, Moses, unless there was a joint commitment to this practice. And so, she came into it unwillingly, unfortunately. But there's significance here to us, and there's a significance here in the sign of this covenant. As I read through this text, I, I know that this is a bit more meat, but I want us to understand that God is dealing with individuals through this. Now, I know that the promise of circumcision kind of is characterized by a certain ethnic group of people, the Jewish people. But even within the Jewish community, God was committing Himself relationally, yes, to the nation, but also to individuals through this. Look at verse 8, for example. God says, and I will give to you and to your offspring. He didn't just say you know, to, to your offspring. He's talking about individuals, to him personally, and then also to individuals. And it says, continue on, it says, um, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojourns, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I will be theirs. And you look down at verse 9, it says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring. So, he's differentiating here. Individuals have to participate in this willingly. I mean, you just drop down even to verse um, 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. There is an individual application here. All people have to respond by faith and participate in it. I mean, how does this happen? How does this happen? Well, a child's parent who refuses to circumcise their child on the eighth day as commanded, watch that child grow up. 
at a certain point of accountability, that child is aware that he's uncircumcised. He has to make his own conscientious decision at that point, am I going to be obedient to what God has told me and my, my ancestors to do? He is not off the hook. He has to make an individual response to God himself. He'll personally be responsible and accountable even if his parents didn't raise him right. That's what's being communicated. You know, it's possible to be circumcised and actually not believe in God. I think we not, should not overlook this point because it is merely the circumcision of the flesh. There's no spiritual value without the circumcision of the heart. It has to go hand in hand together. And God has made it up perfectly clear that He has only always accepted that which is coming from the heart through faith. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, Deuteronomy says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4, 3 through 4 says, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. You know what? This can happen today. This can happen today. A child can pray a prayer to make his parents happy and not even realize the significance of the cost of discipleship. And then later in life, he walks away because he never had it to begin with. What he had was his parents' affection, and attaboy, good job, but he's not had God's affection. That is a danger that can happen. Does it happen all the time? No. And should we let the children come to God? Absolutely. Just because there's a danger doesn't mean that we limit the opportunity. But the truth of the matter is, there may not have been a circumcision of the heart that has taken place. So here, wrapping this up, what is God saying to Abraham? What is he saying to him through this extension, if you will, of the covenant that he had made with with Abraham back in Genesis 15? Well, this is what God is saying here through this. If by faith, if by faith you trust my promise to suffer being torn asunder for you, and out of this faith comes a love for me that creates a desire to keep my law, then I will pour out my blessings upon you. I'm going to do this for you and with any within your family who believe in me and do what I command. It's like getting underneath of that umbrella by faith and obedience. Now, I admit that this is, this is harder material to go through here. But if you can chew this kind of meat, you can cut your way through the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. Because all of Paul's arguments rest upon this concept. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was torn asunder in our place as the guilty covenant partner. By rights, we should have been on that cross. And his death makes it possible for all who believe to keep covenant with him. It's done by grace alone. This is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians chapter 
5, verse 6, he said, in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It doesn't mean anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love. So instead of a circumcision of the flesh, the fleshly lusts are being cut away by the Spirit of God in our heart. And at the root level, we're being gradually purified this is the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. It's waste, taking away and purifying. And this faith in the grace of God, where there is therefore now no condemnation, can give you the empowerment to come in under, underneath that umbrella and to change and to obey Him. This is actually how faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you can actually make a difference in your life. I'll just give one example. And I, I'm, you know, the, the Bible is replete with, with things that we need to change. I mean, we need to get rid of the pride that's in our life. We need to get rid of the, the bitterness and tendency towards gossip with other people and divisiveness and, and dissensions. And instead, we need to cling to 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 Christ and His surpassing worth. I mean, the, the, the Bible's full of this. But I want to give one example here this morning as an application point of how this can affect us. I know many of us struggle with being hurt by other people. How do I know that? Because I'm a human and I am as well. And so, there can be a tendency towards bitterness. But we can, you know, we can look at the Scriptures and we can, we can take some measure of comfort that God is going to avenge us for the hurts that have been done towards us. But that doesn't relieve us completely. That actually might be a, a means for bitterness to grow. I hope they get what they deserve. Someday God is going to make the, the rain fall on them so hard that I will be vindicated. And what's going on there is really just bitterness. Now, God is pointing us to Jesus as the only means for overcoming a spirit of revenge. I mean, we need to look at the cross and realize and take comfort in the fact that God is the forgiver of all sin that we do against other people, even with attitudes of resentment and revenge. Those are sin. Those are sin. See, God's promise to us is not just that He will, you know, right wrongs, but God's promise is that he can take away that resentment that's in our heart and allow us to love. He's forgiven us of that bitterness and that attitude. We don't have to carry that with us. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love and just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. In other words, what Paul is 
communicating here is that we're to get in underneath of this umbrella of God's grace to forgive us for all of our sin. We get in underneath of that grace, we take that bitterness, and we turn it over to God and say, I can't handle this bitterness anymore. Please, I know you have forgiven me. Take it away. There is power for that at the cross. That's why he was torn asunder. And if we believe this, if we believe that this grace has been applied to us, and that we are indeed forgiven, if we claim to believe it, then by grace, out of flowing, underneath of this umbrella, we can now forgive others. Because we realize that the bitterness of our heart has been forgiven. See, saving faith is a wholehearted embrace of all that God is for us in Jesus. And faith in God's forgiveness doesn't mean that I'm off the hook. It means that we are to cherish His forgiveness and apply it to our sinfulness that's within us. And that can liberate us to then love other people and forgive other people. This is how we we see the application of the Holy Spirit in our life. The razor blade of the Spirit is circumcising the sin in our heart. And there's a repentance, a turning to the cross that's needed in those moments. And it's from this that we repent of all bitterness and strife and we turn our hearts over to Him. See, we, Genesis 15, we have this unconditional umbrella. We have Genesis 17, we have faith in what he has done. We move in underneath of that umbrella, and we then find forgiveness for our sins, and then we forgive others outside of us. It's faith in grace that produces the fruit that God requires. God requires of us fruit. He requires of us holiness. But it's faith in what He has done that will eventually produce the fruit that He requires. There is conditions, yes, but those conditions are harnessed to the unconditional promise that He has made towards us. I know we struggle with this concept, but true saving faith, true saving faith will be a faith that produces fruit. But it won't be our work, it will be God's work as we, by faith, rest underneath of His umbrella of grace. That is how true Christian growth works. It's by grace alone through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's strong meat, Lord, and I know that some of us struggle at times with meat, 
I know that um, 